Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Nearly everyone is in agreement that healthcare is an industry that desperately needs transformational change. Uh, But the legacy technologies, interrelationships between providers and payers, and other systemic issues typically keep such transformation from happening. One exception is Jefferson Health, which has transformed itself dramatically in dozens of ways in an extremely brief period of time, embracing emerging technology, reinventing the way that they approach training clinicians and, and delivering care. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Clasco, CEO of Jefferson Health and one of Fast Company's most creative people. And in this discussion, we dig into how he went about transforming Jefferson into a nimble tech-enabled organization, how he managed to drive culture change so quickly to make these initiatives stick. And we get into a number of pretty fascinating, counterintuitive, but extremely effective initiatives that he has spearheaded to facilitate that change. Uh, Stephen is legit one of the most interesting people I've probably ever spoken with, and I think that you'll find the conversation fascinating. So with that, uh, let's get to Stephen. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being here. Um, why don't we start with, I guess you have a, you have a couple of uh, roles over at Jefferson, or at least a couple of entities. Why don't, how do you describe what you do to folks when they, when they ask you? I describe that I'm trying to uh, herd some cats and uh, bring together the fastest growing uh, academic medical center in the nation and have everybody act in concert at the same time that the entire uh, external ecosystem is fundamentally transforming. But other than that, I have a pretty easy job. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> my job is I'm president of a two-campus university. Uh, one campus has been traditionally a health science university. The other campus has been traditionally a design, engineering, and commerce university with about almost 10,000 students. And then I'm now the CEO of, uh, by, uh, by the end of this uh, academic year, will be uh, 18 hospitals. Uh, I really wasn't being cute. We've gone from a one-campus, two-hospital system to a two-campus, 18-hospital system in five years. So wow. a lot of what I do is, is trying to put all those things together into a single enterprise. And I know that you've done you know, quite a few things in terms of how you've kind of, kind of gone about doing that. I'd love to kind of dig into a little bit of it. I know that one of your areas, well, I guess one of your areas of, of interest at least is about, uh, and I've seen you know, some of the conversations that you've had and, and, and presentations that you've given around how to make healthcare more available to folks that don't have access to it. And, you know, you're going in and you're trying to, there's a lot of existing players and existing systems. And a lot of that seems very much aligned against something like, like that happening. How do you think about that problem? And how, how does, I guess, the mission of the organization and maybe some of the initiatives that you've been working on kind of reflect your efforts to try to address some of that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I guess what I'd start out with is, you know, we have to recognize that we do not have a healthcare system in this country. We have a, uh, we take care of sick people system. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that uh, our, our whole mindset is we'll take care of you when you come to, into our hospital. By definition, that's not going to create healthy communities. So um, it start, honestly starts with the mission of the organization. If you look at most academic medical centers, Sean, their mission is to be, you know, number one in U.S. News and World Report or tops in NIH funding. You know, and, and other than you and your mother, nobody really cares about that. <laughs> so, 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 so we, um, we actually changed our mission to we improve lives. Mm-hmm. And we changed our vision to reimagining healthcare education discovery to create unparalleled value. And then we put all of our values into three big buckets. One is be bold and think different, do the right thing, and put people first. So the reason I'm bringing that up is, if you start with we improve lives as your mission, 
then by definition, when you have a gala or you're going out to try to get money, it's not just to get a bigger proton or bigger MRI to compete with the guy next door. Mm-hmm. It, you know, how do we reduce health and equities? And Philadelphia is a great example, Sean. We have five academic medical centers. Yeah. You know, two of them, us and ten, are the top thirty in the country, and we have the greatest discrepancy of life expectancy by any zip code, by zip code of any city in the country. Oh wow! You know, that would seem like why would that be if you have Penn and Jefferson and Temple and Drexel and and Cooper and Einstein? Well, because we would say when you come into our hospitals, we do a good job, but it hasn't been our job in the past to take care of those uh, of, of those social determinants. So Jefferson. We're spending a lot of time looking at how we can look, use things like uh, art, artificial intelligence, yeah. machine learning, deep cognition, and some of the newer technologies to solve that. But let me just say one other thing. I think there's this myth that some of these new technologies are only for rich people. Mm-hmm. So we have one of the largest specialty telehealth uh, pieces in the nation. Yeah. And um, the biggest percentage users of, of that are this very large homeless shelter in Philadelphia. Why? Because... A lot of them don't have cars. If they have cars, they can't really afford the gas, but mm-hmm. they all have a phone. Mm-hmm. We have to get away from this you know, notion that you know, technology can't help with some of these um, social determinants. Yeah. I, I read a little bit about the telehealth platform that your team implemented. I, I believe it was something like 80% of your doctors are using it. It sounds like a pretty amazing, you know, from a, I guess, a digital transformation perspective, that's a pretty amazing kind of statistic. How did that process work kind of culturally? Like, how did you cast the vision of we want to be accessible to anybody in our communities, kind of whether they can get to the hospital or not? And then how did you, you know, I guess, make the help the physicians and the clinicians and the care staff and all that folks kind of realize that a change like that would be good for them uh, and good for the patients? And and, and because a lot of folks kind of run into they can cast a vision, but they can't actually implement it and make it happen. So how did you go about making that happen? It was a little bit by brute force mm-hmm. because, you know, doctors on the whole are not, especially academic physicians, yeah. uh, are not really good at change. Yeah. It's actually a, a big part of my research life has been what makes doctors different than normal people. Yeah. So logic and pleading often don't work. So what, yeah. I mean, what I mean by brute force is we started this telehealth program and invested about $25 million back in 2013. Okay. And I went to every one of our chairs and said, if you want to get your incentive this year, you have to have 80% of your doctors train for and do at least one telehealth piece a month. So after they got done, you know, crying and screaming and threatening to fire me, they did it. Actually, 17 of the 18 did it. The one that didn't do it isn't here anymore. He's here on the earth, but not at Jefferson. Um, and, but I think the real thing about where we've evolved Sean, is, is that um, one of my mentors has, uh, has been John Scully, who is uh, a former CEO of Apple. Yeah. And when we start, first started our telehealth program, he said, you know what? You guys have to stop talking about things like telehealth. He said, we don't talk about telebanking. We don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to telebank. Mm-hmm. It's just the banking has gone from 90% being in the bank to 90% being at home through a variety of technologies. So we've changed how we talk about this now. We now talk about that Jefferson is healthcare with no address. Mm-hmm. And when I gave an interview for for one of the uh, national newspapers, I said, um, I, they said, how will you know if you're successful? I said, I'll know I'm successful if five years from now you come into Philadelphia and ask somebody where's Jefferson and they can't, they said, what do you mean where's Jefferson? Jefferson on my phone or Jefferson on my TV or Jefferson in 
12 urgent care centers or 19 urgent care uh, micro hospitals or Jeff mm-hmm. Connect. Oh, the place where really, really, really sick people go. I think that's still a tenth of all of them. To me, that's when we move from sick care to what we're calling health assurance. Yeah, that's awesome. The the related to the kind of healthcare with no address thing. I know some of the other stuff you've done. Uh, you had that kind of that concept of virtual rounds where family members right. are actually getting to be able to participate in the in the visits and all of that kind of stuff. What are some of the other kind of initiatives along the line of this healthcare with no address, either that you're that you've pursued or maybe what are some of the other technologies that you think are going to make that even more kind of a viable possibility down the road? Yeah, so you know, I think there's a few things. Uh, we're um, we're doing some really exciting things with a company out of Palo Alto, General Catalyst, which is a big VC. Yeah. So you know, we we've been in, in essence their pilot for some of their new new things, and then we helped them develop it. So we were one of the original players with Lavongo, which is a, yep. how do you get diabetes out of the you know stick a strip into your urine mm-hmm. mode? Uh, we're we. we um, one of our most successful things, now that I have a design university, we've worked with a company called Ecofiber to, to carbonize hemp to create wearables. Uh-huh. So the concept that we're working on is one in which you'll go to sleep at night with a T-shirt or pajamas. If you have asthma, it's measuring your respiratory rate. And then when you get up in the morning and talk to your HomePod or your Google Home or your Alexa, it'll know you have asthma, it'll know what your re- respiratory rate is, and we'll look at the pollen count and the AQI and give you some suggestions and then send something to your doctor. We're already working with virtual voice assistants in the hospital. You know, one of the ridiculous things in a hospital, if you, um, if you don't speak English, let's say you speak Vietnamese, you know, every time you have a, you have, and you're a patient, you have a question, they have to get somebody from someplace that speaks Vietnamese. Right. That's, you know, so it might just be that my room's too hot. You know, so literally the nurse has to get there get somebody that speaks Vietnamese from some other area, get them to hear you, turn down the heat, then wait, you know, and, you know, so we're actually, we have a project where the virtual voice assistant can, can pretty much understand any language. Yeah. And some of these things that can happen in a room just get done automatically. So I would say in Vietnamese, the room's too hot. The virtual voice assistant would answer back, okay, um, I'm decreasing the temperature by two degrees. Please let me know if that's comfortable. Yeah. And you've just saved, you know, hours of, of, of labor and made it much easier for patients. So we're trying to look at everything that you can do in the rest of your consumer life yeah. that you can't do in healthcare. So, third, you know, we have one of the largest stroke centers in the country. We have 36 hospitals who use us for stroke. Mm-hmm. And in the past, if, if you came down from, uh, you know, Wilkesboro, which is three hours away, and you need a post-op visit, you have to travel three hours, pay $50 to park, and travel back three hours. We now do about 50% of our post-op checks, sending patients home with a robot, and then, uh, and then doing it, uh, doing it uh, from their home. You know, th- those are all things uh, that, that, that we're either doing or we're working on. We're working on a model with Apple so that, if you, that, you know, the only, I think the only sort of vertical anymore that uses fax machines is healthcare. <laughs> I didn't realize this because I, I happened to see somebody like from Conica at a, at a meeting. Yeah. And they, you know, they're talking about their fax division. I said, and this guy was from Japan. And, and I said, like, you know, you still make faxes? Like, you still make, like, Betamaxes and VHSs too? He wow. goes, oh, no, we sell a lot of faxes. He goes, almost exclusively to the healthcare. So, I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, when you think about it, that's just, it, it, in a way it's laughable. But so one of the things that we're working with is, you know, is the um, Apple Watch folks around 
everybody talks about colorectal surgery and getting colonoscopies and how we can you know, almost, you know, rid people from getting late-stage colorectal disease if everybody got a colonoscopy. Okay, so that's important. You know how 60% of hospitals remind people about their colonoscopy? <laughs> I don't. They, 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 send, they send a letter in the mail. So think about this. Oh, my gosh. You get home after a tough day. You're going through your mail, and there's like three or four bills. Then you get a time for your colonoscopy. You're not putting that at the very top of the pile. You know, so, so what we're working with, you know, through our enterprise internet scheduling thing is where your Apple Watch would say, time for a colonoscopy, press here to make an appointment. Mm -hmm. And you have a calendar like you would with anything else of available times. Yeah. You know, we think that would increase people actually making appointments by about 60%. We've already proven with our telehealth program that non-trauma, non-ambulance patients, um, we can get 40% of them that would have shown up to our expensive, inefficient emergency room mm -hmm. getting taken care of without going to the emergency room, either through, through our virtual triage, either taking care of telehealth or one of our urgent care centers yeah. or getting an appointment the next day with better results. Yeah. It seems like you're moving on a whole bunch of fronts all at once, um, or, or maybe not all at once, but a lot of folks talk about when they're talking about like behavior change or, disrupt, or you know, disruption or any of those kinds of things, like the, the, the behavior change component is a huge piece of it. And to the degree that you're having to kind of go in and change the way, especially from like a workflow perspective for internal folks, you know, um, right. how do you navigate that piece of it in terms of kind of executing on all these different pilots and folks kind of coming in and, and the nature of their jobs or at least part of their jobs kind of changing to adapt to yeah. that, that model, knowing that some of these things will work, some of these things, things don't, but we want you to have an open mind. Like how do you, um, again, from a culture perspective, how do you make them open to rapid iteration and evolution kind of, of, of the way in which they go about doing their, their work? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I could say that it's good having a CEO with a combination of ADD and OCD. So that that that's a pretty good combination. But um, look, I, I I'd say it's three things. I'd say um, one of the things that that we started with is my baseball cap when I run is Jefferson No Limits. So the first mm -hmm. thing, Sean, was convincing folks, and even down literally at all thirty-two thousand employee levels, that healthcare is broken. Mm -hmm. And that the worst thing we can do is keep doing things the way we did. Mm -hmm. That took that took a little bit to get people to. It's a little bit like climate change, right? Yeah. If if if, if you really, really, really don't believe that that it's going to be a problem in your or your kids' lifetime, then the the amount of sacrifice you're willing to go through to help solve it yeah. becomes a lot less. So, my first thing was having people say, "This is unsustainable." Yeah. And then and then the second thing is, you know, with the no limits approach, and I think you mentioned it in your question, is it's very hard for doctors to get it's okay to fail. Because it's really not okay for for me to fail when I'm delivering a baby. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but it is okay for me to fail if I'm doing to your point if I'm doing ten new things. And the way I did that was honestly um lead from the top. And and when I said that my first year I gave a state of the union and, you know, I said, so here's the 10 things I told you I was going to do. Mm -hmm. Here's, you know, here's four that I think have really, you know, really taken hold and I'm pretty proud of. Here's three. We don't know. Here's three that God, what a mess they were. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I must've been on drugs, you know, yeah. um, cause they, 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 they were never going to happen. And you know, what I got was about five or 10 people. They came up to me afterwards and said, you know, it's the first time a president of Jefferson had ever admitted that something they did fail. But what, what, what that did, Sean, it gave everybody else a license, the other chairs and other people said, we can try something. Yeah. And then the third thing is that we, we literally had to develop a model 
financially and operationally that ran the place that way. So we exist on a four-pillar model, and this was really the game changer. And, and the way we described the four-pillar model was as old math and new math. Mm-hmm. The old math is academic and clinical. The new math is innovation, strategic ventures, and philanthropy. And it was fascinating because I did some work with Apple back in the pre-iPhone era. And, you know, one of the geniuses of Steve Jobs was he was able to recognize what was going to be obvious 10 years from now and started today. Yeah. And, and when he, he decided back in early 2000s to move dollars from his old map of computer systems and, and uh, laptops and operating systems to a digital lifestyle, you know, there was almost a mini rebellion within Apple. So we had somewhat the same thing when I started talking about moving dollars to the more traditional things we were doing to innovation, strategic ventures, and philanthropy. Yeah. And I remember I, I, I got invited to the faculty senate, and presidents never get invited to the faculty senate like for a birthday cake. It's always to get censured. <laughs> and, you know, they were going to censure me for this. And I just did a little bit of a Dilbert cartoon. I said, look, the old math is NIH funding. Anybody think that's going to double anytime soon? Okay. Well, that's okay because we can always make it up with the ridiculous profits we make from being a safety net hospital, you know, in a, in a Medicaid environment. Oh, well, that's not true. Well, that's all right, because we can always charge 12% more tuition and just put it on the backs of students. Well, that gigs up also. So, you know, I think I was able to convince them that yeah. there's going to be a trillion dollars spent on healthcare transformation, and why shouldn't we be part of that? Yeah. And to me, that was the game changer. So, so how do we get this done? Because literally, folks are, are in one pillar or another. Now, they work across pillars. So while it looks like we have, you know, a hundred things going on, you know, some of them are in the innovation pillar. The yeah. mergers are predominantly in the clinical pillar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just did a thing with uh, bidding for 571 residents from uh, one, of the, one of the academic centers that just went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. That was in the academic pillar. And, you know, and, and what I do is I get the pillar leaders together, you know, once a week, and, you know, we, we see where we need to go across pillar. Um, and then we have certain, like, horizontal pillars. So, like, health equities is a horizontal pillar. Why? Because that's important for academics, that's important clinically. We have to change our curriculum. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure we're taking care of everybody. It requires innovation, and it's been a big part of philanthropy. Yeah. So I think that you know, I think some things are, are horizontal, but we but we really budget and do everything based on four pillars, not departments. The other thing that we've done that I think has been very successful is we've gotten away, Sean, from departments. Departments are really really stupid in healthcare. I mean, you know, you think about it. If you have a headache. You have no idea if you have a neurologic headache, a neurosurgical headache, a psychiatric headache, or a family practice headache. Oh, interesting. But in most in most places in 2019, you have to go to four different doctors in four different places. Yeah. So we create what we call CRISPs, Clinical and Research Integrated Strategic Programs, mm-hmm. where the doctors move to where the patients are. What we say is we're going from softies to CRISPs, from silos of full-time individuals to clinical and research integrated strategic programs. So, so I, I think the end result has been we've been able to do a lot in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And by the way, some people don't like that pace and they leave, sure. which, is, which is really okay. I mean, it, it's very understandable. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, that one of those pillars was this uh, you know, sort of strategic ventures kind of arm of things. And it sounds like you're a big proponent of leveraging partnerships with venture and with innovative companies and things like that and do, executing on pilots and all that kind of stuff. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it I, I would imagine that you structure those in, in a way that is kind of mutually advantageous, where if they're successful, you're also successful being a good fiduciary for the, for the business. How, how do you think about partnerships and, and, and why do you think that that makes sense for hospital systems? And then maybe are there, there's a lot of examples of kind of corporate venture 
kind of gone wrong? Are there any sort of pitfalls or things to avoid or thing, lessons that you've kind of learned as you've executed on kind of the strategic and partnership side of things? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great question. So the way I got into this is I used to, in my former jobs, since, you know, I was like the, I was like the hospital CEO. Remember that commercial with the uh, cereal where Mike, it, Mikey will eat anything. Oh, Mikey yeah. will eat it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, you know, I was like the Mikey of hospital CEOs because somebody would come up with a good idea. And if I thought it was a good idea, I'd try it. And then what would happen is, you know, nine months later, I'd get a call from the, from the founder who said, look, Steve, you know what? We're about to have an IPO for $2 billion. I never could have done it without you. I'd like to take you out to dinner. And, you know, my first reaction, that better, better be a really good dinner because if you're doing a $2 billion <laughs> IPO and you couldn't have done it without me, you know, I'm pretty stupid. So, um, uh, so, so you know, what, what we came to recognize as we got larger, and, you know, we're now sort of the largest health system in our primary and secondary area, that um, we, we divide everything when we deal with, a, with, with somebody from the outside. Are you, am I going to be a vendee? Or is this a strategic partnership? If I'm going to be a vendee, it clearly doesn't get to me. You know, it's, it's not at my level. Somebody can decide. We do RFPs, whatever it is. Somebody comes to me and says, I want to really create a strategic partnership with you. Then it starts out in our innovation pillar. And they, okay. and they first make the deal. Then I send it to the clinical pillar to see if it's the kind of thing we want to do. So, so you know, I mean, I, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, this thing we're doing with General Catalyst. Um, which is really using uh, FHIR technology to build a platform on top of Epic or Cerner or Allscripts yeah. and almost create an app store. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're their primary site. So what we, and we, we're going to have to invest a lot and they're going to have to invest a lot to make it happen. So what we, what we get for that beyond the reputational positive is restricted stock. We get, we were able to invest in, in series a funding yep. with Lobongo. We have a development partnership mm -hmm. because we're helping them expand it outside of diabetes, to hypertension, whatever. So that when a new, uh, a new customer comes, we get a certain amount per member per month. Yeah. Um, with that wearable I talked to you about, since some of that was our technology, we own 10% of that company and it became an Australian IPO. So this will be literally shown the first year where our dollars from the new math of innovation, strategic ventures, and philanthropy, from a net operating income perspective, equal or surpass our dollar, our net income from the from the old math. You do that in five years. That's now. Now you, you know you asked that you asked a very important and good question about what pitfalls. Yeah, I think the biggest pitfalls are really being very clear about conflict of interest and also being very willing to let something fail. If we've invested a million dollars in a partnership and we don't think it's going anyplace, then we just have to recognize that that's a sunk cost yeah. and we'll make it up with a partnership that, 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 that is going someplace. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, making sure that anything we're doing, that there are no individuals that serve to gain from it. You know, oh, that's, yeah. that's always a tough, yeah. tough situation, whether that's board, you know, yeah. you know, all, all the stuff that happened with uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering and University of Maryland probably didn't start out that way. Yeah. But it became a thin edge of the wedge. If you're going to be entrepreneurial, you have to be that much, that much more village vigilant about making sure that you don't have those, uh, the, those conflicts. It seems like you've almost taken a page from, from VC in a way in terms of if you need to be willing to embrace failure and to kind of avoid sunk cost fallacy and cut the cord and all that kind of stuff, and if this pillar is going to be one of those key components of your, you know, your business model, um, there's this portfolio 
kind of aspect of it where it's like you almost need to be pursuing, you know, a dozen or whatever of these initiatives to kind of maximize risk adjusted return and that kind of thing. Was that, is that, is that a deliberate kind of, you know, conscious sort of decision or did that just sort of happen organically? And yeah, no, no, I, I think, I think that's right. Well, what happens is when you start to have that kind of philosophy, you bring different people in mm-hmm. and they put, you know, I mean, they, they push the organization. The other thing I think that, that I, that I am pretty proud of is I don't micromanage and I bring in great people. There was a, one of my warden professors, uh, said something that I always remember. He said, you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job than you and three that are right. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, I brought, you know, some amazing innovation people in that hadn't been in healthcare before. Yeah. We, we have, we have this uh, thing called DICE, Digital Innovation and Consumer Experience. It's led by a guy named Neil Gomes. Mm-hmm. But literally it's probably like 40 app developers that show come like from the gaming industry, from all over. They come, you know, a lot of them, you know, twenty something coming to work at two p.m. and you know they Instagram me at two a.m. You know, they've got that kind of culture. Yeah, but which is great because that's what you want. I don't need a sixty-five-year-old, you know, guy in a suit creating apps for me. Yeah. Um. Um. You know. So. So we've been. I think that the answer to your question is we've been open culturally to having that mindset. Um. And, and, you know, it used to be that entrepreneurial and academic were mutually exclusive terms. And I think we've done a really good job of being both and instead of either or. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. know, you, know, you know, the guy that's operating on your, on your pancreatic cancer, you don't really want him to be an entrepreneur. You want him to be a damn good, you know, competitive autonomy yeah. surgeon. Yeah. But, but most of those people, probably because they are so meticulous and are so great uh, at what they do, are not necessarily the most creative in how you deliver deliver care. So, so it's part of the reason why we, you know, if, if you just, just want to think about this logically. So from the time I started delivering babies, by the way, it was a really sad, uh, sad day. A few weeks ago, I gave a talk to our medical students and one of the medical students comes running out after says, my mom will kill me if I don't talk to you. Dr. the president class. I said, what is it? Uh, I thought it was going to be about tuition or something. So you delivered me 31 years ago at Sacred Heart Hospital. So <laughs> I felt really old. But you know, but, but but as I think about you know, like being in practice for 30 some years, um, the technology that's changed the way that I deliver a baby is monumental. Mm-hmm. But in that 35 years, there's almost been no change in how we actually deliver healthcare. So one of my colleagues said, you know, in healthcare in America, we have Star Wars technology. In a Fred Flintstone healthcare delivery, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about you know all the changes in MRIs and mm-hmm. robotics and yeah. how we treat individual patients, but yeah. we still have a situation where you know in most cases you're getting on the phone and listening to eleven options to get an appointment the next one. Right. I would imagine you know you mentioned just how things have changed. I would imagine and you mentioned machine learning a little bit while ago. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of interest in terms of like automating and routinizing a lot of different aspects of healthcare. But what do you see the role of the physician kind of being in the future? Obviously, you still have a college and all that kind of stuff. What do you think the maybe the skills are going to need to be that are going to be really important for this next wave of kind of clinicians kind of coming in? And how do you see sort of the technology kind of supplementing what they do? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the question. And like a lot of other things I said, I think the change has to not be incremental. It has to be really, 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 we have fundamental overhaul of how we select and educate physicians. At the World Economic Forum, Jack, ba- Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, yeah. uh, had this great quote. He said, um, so when we created cars, we didn't try to get people to run faster. 
when we created planes, we didn't try to get people to fly. <laughs> Computers will always be smarter than doctors, but they'll never be as wise. Hmm. So think about, think about medical education. We have 12,000 applicants at Jefferson for our 290 slots. The traditional sort of gateway to get into medical school was organic chemistry. Hmm. You get a C in organic chemistry, you're toast. Organic chemistry was basically taking these complicated formulas and being able to reproduce them on a blank sheet of paper. That's exactly what you want for your family doc. Yeah. To do that. Right, right. So, so, but, but the reason for that is if I can memorize 19 reasons that you had jaundice and another doctor can only memorize 15, I was a better doctor than you. But now the 19 are on my supersized iPhone. Right. So I guess, I guess the simple answer is we still accept physicians based on science, GPA, netcats, and organic chemistry grades. And somehow we're amazed that doctors aren't more empathetic to the creative. Right? Uh, so, so I think that the, the big difference with AI is that, that we need to create better humans than the robots, not better robots than the robots. Yeah. And then we need to fundamentally change our curriculum. I mean, our curriculum still has 16 weeks of biochemistry and 16 weeks of you know, microbiology and 16 weeks of anatomy, yeah. but maybe one day of quality, <laughs> maybe two days of communication skills, and maybe three days of health equities. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're going to become a family doctor in OBGYN, you're not going to be a scientist, then that microbiology and biochemistry, and that kind of thing, is stuff you could do online. Along those lines, you, I, so, I, you did the... Uh... You have the design, like the design lab inside of the school, and I believe didn't you didn't you acquire like even like a fashion college or something like that? You, it sounds like you're you're kind of going all in on some of these other like almost design thinking type of disciplines as well. Yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, it's exactly right. I'm really proud of that. We people thought we were nuts, but we acquired we now are the num Thomas Jefferson University is the number three fashion design college in the country, number wow. seven in the world. So it's like, you know, the, if you look at the rankings, it's Milan, London, New York, and East Falls, Pennsylvania. Who would have thought, right? Wow. So, um, so you might say, well, what does that do with healthcare? Well, it, it has a lot. We, we created the first MD Masters in Design. It's a really cool program we have at Princeton University where the kids, the students get in after their first year of Princeton. Uh, they're, they're assured admittance into Sydney Kimmel Medical College. They okay. go through the whole four years. We tell them to major in something cool, you know, not chemistry or biology, but take the courses they have to take to get into medical school. Then we don't make them take the MedCats, the multiple choice test. And then they, they get in and they get an MD, Master's in Design. So we've created, to your point, a whole design thinking curriculum in, in, in a medical environment. And when you think about how important that is, it, it's, it's how are humans going to interact with healthcare system. That's what design is, right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about the, you know, the reason Apple's stock has gone up 2,700 times is, is not because of, they have better chips than Microsoft, is because Apple and I, I mean, Jobs and Ives and those guys were really thinking about how humans interact with their environment. That's probably important in health. Yeah. And, and we spend very little time thinking about that. So we think the combination of all the top design architecture and build environment universities in the country with uh with one of the health science universities is really a secret sauce and it's been a, it's been a whole lot of fun along similar lines yeah I, at least in like the venture and tech circles i can't really speak to the larger world but uh there seems like there's been this big emphasis on around like things like mental health and that's becoming not so taboo anymore and it's becoming more accepted that that's kind of a key kind of component to what it is to be a person how, how do you, I guess, see the interplay between mental health and physical health? And are there, are, are there initiatives that, that you're doing, 
you know, you mentioned kind of your cross-functional teams and things like that. Is there anything that, that y'all are doing from a mental health side? Yes. Yeah, so, so well, the, yes, we're doing a lot. And I think, the, I, I think there's, there's two or three things that, that combine with that question that become really important. First of all, just even the, even the verbiage we use, we've gotten away from using, you know, you've probably heard the term, I'm going to go have my physical. So it's like, okay, so that means you're going to check yourself from your neck on down. Well, that's great. There's something above your neck, hopefully, uh, that you probably ought to check. So yeah. getting away from that term, I'm going to have my physical and going more to sort of, I'm going to have a holistic check, checkup, I think is important. We have a whole brain health department that literally we, you come in and just like we would, you know, look for risk factors on your traditional physical side, or do you have cardiovascular risk factors, do you have cancer risk factors, and do some tests and do some, you know, potentially some uh, proactive uh, imaging things. We do the same thing with your brain. You know, are you, are you at risk for, um, uh, for Alzheimer's? You know, uh, how can we keep your brain sharp? So that's number one. Number two, one of the weird things about this country in healthcare is it's the only thing we do is it's not global. And this is what I mean by this. Sean, if you're like a, a major player in finance in Shanghai and you come to this country, you can be the CEO of any company here. You can work in any company here. You know, the same is true of transportation, same is true of the computer industry. If you're in the co- computer industry in India and you go over to Apple, you can, you can be anything here. The only thing that's not true is in, is in healthcare. Hmm. If you're the chair of cardiothoracic surgery for the top hospital in Italy or China, and you come over here, we, we make you retake your residency so you can learn the screwed up way we do things <laughs> with, with drug surgery. And the reason, the reason I bring that up in a behavioral health thing is because we've really failed in behavioral health as a country, and there are other countries that have done a better job. So, so what we've done at Jefferson, beyond the brain health piece, is Bernie Marcus, the, um, the founder of Home Depot, one of the founders of Home Depot, is one of our largest donors, and he gave us a whole lot of dollars to create the Marcus Center for Integrative Health. Hmm. And instead of acupuncture or yoga or some of these other things that might have an impact on brain health being, you know, alternative health, we actually bring the best of all those worlds together, um, especially as it relates to behavioral health. And then I think the last thing is because we've become sort of the place uh, where good ideas get tried, we're really starting to um, see some really interesting machine cognition things and that kind of thing in um, in behavioral health. So I'm on the board of a company. Again, it's, it's a company partly um, partly financed by General Catalyst, which has been our partner, yeah. called MindStrong. And MindStrong is, is doing some amazing work around digital footprinting for serious mental illness. In hmm. essence, predicting who's going to go off the edge, similar to the way you predict somebody based on their digital footprint around terrorism and those kind yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so and, and, and the other thing to recognize is, you know, I mean, with a lot of these things, is there's a huge generational difference. I mean, we did a study, and it's just unbelievable, but um, people under 40, 70% of them, Sean, for mental health issues, behavioral health issues, would rather talk to a bot than a human. Oh, wow. And Is that because and, of, like, judgment, fear. like fear of being judged, or what, what well, is, well, what I, is that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's that. I think it's that they feel they'd be more open. Hmm. I think they're used to... This, I'm not trying to fight about this, but this is a generation that has no problem with sexting. Yeah, you know, but 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 they're but they're not going to take off their clothes, you know, in, in you know, in the middle of any place. So, so they just they, they just feel comfortable being open in that environment, whether that's smart or not. So yeah. if you can give them a secure environment with a bot, 
I think they feel it's less judge. They'll be willing to talk about things. That generation, certainly not my generation. Yeah. But that generation feels that they'll be willing to, to, to talk about more. And by the way, so I said that was like 65 to 70%. If, if, it's, a, if it's a young woman of color mm-hmm. and you ask her that question and the choices, you can see a doctor, a human doctor that looks like me and a Caucasian male or see a, a bot that, that looks more like you. That goes up to almost 90%. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So I think, I think some of this is starting to recognize you know, the, you know, I mean, you know, if I, if I told some of my colleagues that, they, they, would, yeah. they would think I was nuts, but yeah. it's just a fact. And, and I think we have to start to look at, I, I've started this company um, that's doing match.coms between um, pregnant patients and obstetricians. And if you think about it, the way it used to be in my, when, I, when I started out in practice, Mrs. Jones would be late for her period. She'd go to her, you know, 65-year-old male family doc. Mm-hmm. I would do a pregnancy test and say, congratulations, Mrs. Jones, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Klasko. Well, there's, you know, you know enough about people in their 20s that there's zero chance that for the most important thing in their life, they're just going to take that advice from some random, you know, old old guy. You know, they're going to want to go on Yelp and go on and see who will accept their door and, you know, what other people have said. Right. So we've actually created that vehicle where they can match.com and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a patient of Brimar. I, I, I want to live within a few miles of, yeah. of my house. I like the predominantly female group that will accept my door. I have Etna Gold. I don't want to spend more than $1,000 of my own money. I can only be seen on Fridays. Yeah. And then you compete for that patient. And again, you know, some of my colleagues say that's the end of medicine as we know it. Some of my colleagues think that's really cool. There's a big age and gender difference between those two things. Sure, I bet. You mentioned the 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 thing that sort of predicted, like the digital fingerprinting, and there's a bunch of other. You know, I, I obviously like a lot of. There's a lot of interest around things like genomics and or genomics, or I don't know how you yeah. pronounce it, things like that. You know, there's this interplay in your world between the people delivering care and you know, for example, payers and things like that. I would imagine there's a you know there's a privacy component. To, to a lot of these technologies and what they can theoretically enable, where on the one hand, it'll allow you to deliver much, much better care than what they would ever be able to get otherwise, and consumer preference would probably be really high for something like that. But then depending on who has access to that information, you know, like if it, if it, if it could be modified, if it can modify how I underwrite your health insurance policy or things like that, then there, there, might, you know, there might be some downsides. So how do folks in your world, are they talking about that kind of stuff? And, and how... How do you see the, 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 the privacy kind of component sort of unfolding and maybe the interplay between people delivering care and then the people that are going to be on the hook to try to help you know, pay for it? It's a huge, huge, huge issue. And, and I think it's got a lot of potential pitfalls. I think because, first of all, cybersecurity and health is huge. But the difference with genomics, is, just to use that as an example, is you know, if, they steal, if somebody steals my lab test or whatever, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, that's that's a continuous thing. Yeah. Somebody steals my genome. Yeah. That, that's my only genome for the, yeah. rest, for, the, for the rest of my life. You know, I think, you know, look, we've, we've uh, gone full in. We have, this, uh, we have this relationship with a company called Color that where all 32,000 of our employees are offered full genomic and subtyping for free. But the, but, the, but the sort of bright line we put is they're the only people that get the data. Okay. They can choose to share it with their doctor, which most of them do. Uh, and there are four or five things that will actually affect their care. But we, we make sure that nobody else can get it. And that's why people don't trust the Googles of the world totally, yeah. you know, to hold their genetic data because they don't really believe that it will say. Now, now, what's starting to happen is 
you know, as we start to look at how important genomics is in research, the question really becomes who should profit from that? Yeah. So in, in, in you know, in the past, think about this, you'd say, all right, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a study to advance people with ovarian cancer. If, if you know, somebody's an ovarian cancer patient, you'd, you'd normally have them say, would you be willing for us to use your data, you know, for this study? Well, that study might result in a hundred million dollar drug. So what's starting to happen is there are, there are consumer groups that are saying almost like, um, all right, I don't mind using my genomic data for clinical research, but then I want to be paid for it. So that literally, if, if, if we have, you know, it's almost like my son's an actor. Yeah. Every time one of his commercials gets on, he gets a little residuals. Yeah, totally. Counter. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So, so it would be that kind of thing. I think those are the kind of questions that should and are starting to get asked. I think on the augmented intelligence side, I mean, part of the problem is, you know, what is it? If you put A and I in the same sentence, you can get $500 million funded. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think we have to wait and see, you know, what the robots are really, what they're really going to be able to do. I think there's a lot of people have gotten ahead of their skis. You look at IBM Watson and sure. Andy Anderson, and that was by and large a failure. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we have to recognize there will be machines that will be better at synthesizing, integrating, and memorizing stuff than we are. But I, I, I'm not as sure that, that, that tomorrow that's, that's going to affect what we do on a day-to-day basis. I think it will allow, getting back to my example of the wearables and the virtual voice assistant, it will allow a lot more health care to happen at home. Yeah, well, so it's, good. it's pretty, pretty incredible just what you've managed to do. I mean, and, and it sounds like in, in fi- you know, basically five years. Um, what do you, I guess, what are you excited about over the next five or 10 years for the organization? Where do you, where do you kind of see things either headed for, for your organization specifically or for the industry as a whole? Well, you know, the first thing is, um, you may or may not have read, we've come to an agreement with uh, Temple University about uh, acquiring uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center and uh, their shares in a Medicaid Medicare Advantage uh, health plan called Health Partners Plan. Okay. So for the first time, we'll be a, a payer provider. So Got the it. first thing I'm excited about is really, really, you know, looking at how we can use some of these innovations once you have a percentage of premium model. Because almost all the innovate, you know, one of the really, like the, one of the really weirdest things about our healthcare system is that fragmentation between the provider and the payer. Right, when you think about it, you know, not in all situations, but in a lot of situations, the payer is in essence a middleman, right? Right. And and you know, the employer who provides most of the insurance only talks to the payer. In most cases, the doctor gets paid by the payer, even though it's the employer's money. Right. And the patient deals with the payer, even though the, it's really the patient-doctor relationship. So basically, you have this. Big thing in the middle that, you know, that makes sure that people that pay for the care, people who get the care, and people who provide the care don't talk to each other. And, and that almost seems like it's a, an advantage to them to, you know, there's an information asymmetry kind of component to that where it's beneficial for that to continue, you know, from their perspective. Yeah. 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 And I mean, so, so if you just think about it, and not to, not to in any way denigrate the insurance industry, but, but if you just think about the fact that in every other industry that's become more efficient, who, what's been narrowed right. is the middle people, right? Right. So it, when the Affordable Care Act came out and President Obama said, we're going to move a dollar a quarter of health care to a dollar, in, in every situation like that, the middle, the middle man has, has shrunk. So I'm excited about the fact that I'm now going to be able to 
utilize some of these technologies. And I'll give you one really good example. So, you know, as we talked about a little earlier, we were one of the pioneers in telehealth and virtual triage. Yep. And we recognized that we could probably move about 40 or 50% of our non-trauma, non-ambulance patients out of our ER and into easier ways to either take care of them at home or take care of them in the care center or take care of them in the office the next day. Up till this point, we didn't have a pair that, that would make that worth our while to do it because we make an average of about $1,500 if somebody comes to our ED and an average of about $90 if we can't handle it one of the other ways. Yeah. So, so it would have been suicide, if you will, to, to do that. Well, starting in January, we, we actually now take care of our, we self-insure our 32,000 employees and we have a TPA, a, a partner with Aetna. And as part of that, we basically told people, our employees, that if you just show up to our ED, it's a $500 deductible. If you go through virtual triage and we send you to our ED, it's a zero deductible. And because we're the employer, the provider, and the payer, it's been great for patients. It's decreased costs by a lot, which is good for the patient and for us. And it's actually been a positive for us to do the right thing. Yeah. So I guess what I'd say is what I'm excited about is there, there's a quote that Upton Sinclair once said, he said, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. Yeah. And we have a lot of that in healthcare. Yeah. So I think, I think that's one of the things I'm excited about. The other thing I'm excited about, I think, is really, really pushing this partnership with, uh, with General Catalyst and being embedding their engineers into our system and our system into their engineers. Part of the reason that, that I think EMRs were not as successful as we hoped is because they were done in a vacuum. Why? Because we really, we really weren't that interested in them, yeah. and they didn't interact. So now they create this product, and we say, oh, boy, that's no good. Right. I mean, think about electronic medical records. They're the first technology in the history of the universe where you spend $300 million to get it, and you need more people just to get back to where you were doing before. You know, that's drives it on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think what, what we're excited about with our partnership with General Catalyst is they're going to embed some of their engineers into our cabinet so they know what our issues are. Yep. And we're going to embed some of our medical students and faculty into what they're doing so that when, when AI becomes a reality, we sort of understand it, or some of us do. Well, this has been really, really fascinating. For folks that are interested in learning more either about Jefferson or about your work or thinking kind of specifically, where should I send folks? So we have uh, Twitter feed is uh, – is, uh, uh, at S. Glasgow. Um, and, you know, so I think, and, you know, just go on jefferson.edu's website, a lot of these innovations, uh, and, and you could be innovation pillar, a lot of these innovations are, are there. So so I would say they're at S. Glasgow, www.sclasgow.com uh, or uh, jefferson.edu. Very cool. Steve, th- thanks so much for taking the time. This was fantastic and, uh, and, you know, just super impressed with everything that you've managed to do over these last few years. Thanks, Sean. It's been really fun chatting with you. My guest today was Dr. Stephen Clasco. For more information on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you choose. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time.